The following is a sermon podcast from White Ridge Baptist Church. Good morning, White Ridge. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Alexis, and today I'm joining you from Mexico where I'm doing a discipleship training school. We're going to be reading from Matthew 1, verses 18 to 25. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save the people from their sins. All of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary home as his wife, but he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and she gave him the name Jesus. Amen. It's so good to hear from Alexis all the way down in Mexico. And uh, good to be together this morning, if not uh, <clears throat> here in this building, at least on, uh, online. And uh, I invite you as you uh, come together, would you join me in prayer as we continue uh, just to look at the scripture this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this season of Advent, and uh, Lord, we think of the prophecies of old that foretold the coming of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, and I think of Isaiah, and Lord, you said that um, every valley shall be lifted up, every mountain will be made low, and the rough places plain. And Father God, if, if indeed that prophecy is talking about the, the poor and the humble and the oppressed of our society in the valleys being lifted up. And if it's talking about those who exploit and the proud being on the mountain and being to be made low, Lord, then we ask you, O oh God, even in our time, would you come, Lord Jesus, and do your work. Raise up the valleys, O oh Lord, and those who live in the valleys. And bring down the mountains, O oh God, and make them plain. And uh, Lord, all the rough places, would you, would you bring about that kind of society, O oh God, as we think and we look to Jesus Christ, our Savior. And as we think about the second coming and what that will usher in, O oh Lord, would you do your work. Thank you, Father. Lord, the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, you said, and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Oh, Father, be glorified today. As we open your word, would you speak to our hearts in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, I'm, I'm glad that uh, Kevin has already given a little bit of a, a, a commercial on neighborhood groups. I had it on my mind as well this past week. Hundreds of phone calls have been going on. I've made some of them myself as Pat and I are neighborhood group leaders in our area. 
And uh, we're just encouraging you to uh, continue to pray for our church family. And I'm excited about the fact that our body of believers is connecting with each other. We're finding out about so many needs. We're finding out about how to pray and support each other, care for each other. And one of the things we're also finding out is that there's changes in emails and addresses and phone numbers. And so if you are, uh, have changed one of those in the last while and we don't know about it, would you phone the church office or would you email Kathy uh, office at whiteridgebaptist.ca? We'd love to <clears throat> get that information. We have been going, as uh, Kevin said, through uh, the Advent series and fleshing out Christmas. And uh, our desire is to, to exalt and understand and celebrate the incarnation of God becoming flesh, the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And we're doing it through the eyes of Matthew's gospel. Last week, Doug talked about the virgin birth, really. He said, he talked about how Jesus was conceived in Mary's womb by the Holy Spirit and through the Holy Spirit. And um, that was an incredible and miraculous event. Matthew 1.18 talks about that. The birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And uh, Christ was born through the Holy Spirit in order to invite us to be able to also be born through the Holy Spirit so that we could have a relationship with God the Father. And that is the focus of this morning's message on the fatherhood of God. And uh, this morning, we're going to be talking about the essential historical nature of Jesus Christ having an earthly father, uh, having a sinless life, uh, dying as a substitution for us as sinners, and also having an incredible relationship with the heavenly father that uh, we want to follow and administrate as well. Matthew 1.1 is interesting. At the beginning of this gospel, the writer says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And he takes 17 verses at the beginning of this gospel to describe the lineage, the royal descent of Jesus from Abraham through David all the way to Joseph, who was Jesus' earthly father, though not his biological father. And Matthew records this ancestry in such detail. It, this is an Ancestry.com poster story, if there ever was one. And in this scripture, uh, fleshing out Christmas as we think about that theme, we ask, why is it that Matthew did that? Why does he start with this lineage of Joseph, the earthly father of Jesus? Why is that so important? I think there's two reasons at least. First of all, because Joseph was actually the legal guardian on earth for Jesus. The, uh, under Roman and Jewish law, uh, every adopted son had full rights and privileges as biological sons or daughters. And so that was one of the reasons. The other reason is perhaps is the, the theme of Matthew is the kingship of Jesus. And this theme shows this royal line of David has to be described before the story of Jesus is entered into. For there would be a, a ruler that was raised up that would sit on David's throne forever, and that is Jesus Christ. And so Matthew begins by explaining the royal line of Jesus. Now, I don't know if you've noticed, but I have noticed that down through the history of the church age, 
And especially as we look at art and how it has been used by the church to display the history and theology of the church, of, the, of Christianity, certainly Joseph does not get a lot of attention, not certainly like Mary does. We actually do not know a lot about Joseph uh, from the Gospels, except that he was a craftsman, a carpenter. The word is uh, tech, tecton, which is the, an ordinary laborer. And, in, and likely as a father, he taught Jesus the trade that he had, whether it was in woodworking or in ironwork or in uh, perhaps even masonry. And uh, as I've been thinking about this, I thought I would do a little more of my reviewing of pictures that I've taken in the past or looking online. I am a, a fond of Renaissance art, particularly religious art, and when I get a chance to go to a museum or to a cathedral or an art gallery, I like to take some snapshots or study and read what they're saying, especially concerning religious art. And the Renaissance period is perhaps one of my favorite period, the, roughly the 14th to the 16th century Europe. And we know that artists and sculptors and the like were used by the church to, to depict the biblical stories, the history and the theology of the church. And then the priests would take the paintings or the statues and they would teach the masses on the, the meaning of the biblical stories of the history of Israel and the church and of Jesus and the apostles. But when I think about Joseph, I, I think that he gets kind of the short end of the stick. He, he doesn't seem to be fairly represented. And so what I want to do is I want to show you a little bit of what I mean. First of all, when we think about Mary, there's, there's ample uh, uh, paintings of Mary in history. Mary with Jesus. And oftentimes surrounded by the saints of old. And in this one, for example... There's, Joseph is not to be found, but Mary and Jesus are there surrounded by several uh, biblical dignitaries, as we might call them. Sometimes the, the pictures, the paintings of Jesus are very interesting. It, it depicts a Jesus that's not bald as a baby, but it looks like he's got a receding forehead. It, he's a mature baby, Jesus. And, uh, and oftentimes, again, in the, the shroud of holiness with angels around her and uh, Jesus... <clears throat> Sometimes you find that Mary is holding Jesus on the cross. Again, this, this foresight of the fact that he came to die. And that this religious art is, again, always used to be teaching <clears throat> the Bible and theology. But seldom does Joseph show up as much as Mary. Here is one of the pictures that I took in Siena, Italy, on my sabbatical four years ago. And there were several paintings by this um, artist, his name is Duccio, I can't pronounce his last name, <clears throat> he actually is the late 13th century, but he especially, uh, the color and the beauty of his art is incredible, but here is the visit of the Magi, and Joseph isn't there, I mean, where did he go? Mary and Jesus are there, receiving the gifts, same artist, later when Jesus is taken to the temple, you'll notice on the right is Simeon and behind him Anna, these old people that were waiting for the consummation of Israel, the coming of the Messiah. And you'll notice that Joseph is behind Mary, but he looks rather old. He almost looks as old as Simeon. Not sure why they depict him that way. He probably would have been uh, probably maybe eight, 18 or 20, uh, possibly. Uh, 
as Mary would have been younger than that even. And then <clears throat> I find um, here is a very interesting one that is from Milan, and I'm not sure if you can read what is written beside the painting, but on this, in this painting by Gaudenzio Ferrari in 16th century, there's a caption that reads this way. You'll notice that Joseph is on the right. He's touching his hat. It says, Here the dignified Mary gazes with infinite tenderness upon her child. Joseph, kneeling and touching his hat in a gesture of astonishment, seems to have just become aware of his son's holiness. The angels below reverentially coddle and adore Christ, while those above proclaim his divinity. The solemn figure on the left was probably the patron who commissioned the artist to paint him as a cleric in perpetual prayer. And together, these figures engagingly portray a range of relationships and reactions to the divine Christ. I mean, it's incredible. I find, why is Joseph the one that's portrayed as just sort of finally dawning on him who Jesus is? I don't think Joseph gets a fair shake. And then here are a couple of paintings <clears throat> of Joseph uh, just kind of uh, standing, looking at his new son, uh, not his personally, biologically, but the son, and uh, he is looking with a kind of a sense of awe, uh, not sure what to take of that expression on his face as we see the Holy Family, mystified perhaps, again, older than Mary, and this one shows the, the reverence, but sort of aloof, you know, the Joseph behind Mary there. And uh, then in the Vatican, I took these pictures where an artist depicted the stable. There's Joseph again, uh, much older than Mary. And then the same artist, this fleeing to Egypt when Joseph was warned in a dream. And uh, they're taking off to Egypt. It's interesting to ponder what kind of earthly father was Joseph. This is what I'm talking about this morning for the first part of the sermon. In my experience, it seems like throughout church history, Joseph was not painted justly, properly. In fact, I would say you would be hard-pressed to find a portrait of Jesus and Joseph, a father-son portrait, in the first 1,800 years of church history. I looked for some. I never found them. <clears throat> this is one that I found that was from the uh, 16th century, 17th century from Spain. Uh, artist Bartolome Esteban Murillo. Uh, here he is, the, this idea of the holy family, a little dog with Jesus. And um, then it was probably in the last 50 to 100 years these paintings came about where Jesus and Joseph are there. Finally, we're starting to see the human Joseph, uh, that the kind of father that he likely was. And uh, again, why is it? Perhaps it's because in the Roman Catholic Church there was the veneration of Mary, so much so, and Joseph just kind of was eclipsed in the scene. But indeed, who was Joseph? What kind of father might he have been? We know that he was a just man and a merciful man. We know it from Matthew chapter 1, verses 19 and 20, that the very time when he found out that Mary, his engaged betrothed woman, was, uh, was, was pregnant outside of marriage, um, he was merciful. He wanted to do what was right and just, but he wanted to do it in a merciful way. 
because he knew that it would bring shame upon her. And he was willing to go with that. So he divorced her quietly. And as he considered this, it says in the Bible that an angel appeared to him in a dream. And that he told Joseph, this is from God. This is, this is the conception of the Holy Spirit in this woman Mary. And it says that he woke up, he did exactly what God commanded him through the angel. He took Mary as his wife. He did not sleep with Mary until she had already had Jesus and they were legally married. And then he called him Jesus even as he had been taught to. And so later in chapter 2.13 as well, we read that, that another angel appears to Joseph and warns them to flee to Egypt because Herod is trying to kill the baby. And then later on again, he's warned in a dream again he can return to Nazareth because Herod has died. It seems like this man was very much in touch with God, very much an honorable father and husband. And by all accounts, Joseph was a diligent, faithful husband and father. And we don't know exactly when he died, but he died sometime between that, that scene in Luke's gospel when Jesus visited the temple and Joseph and Mary found him there at the age of 12. And then when Jesus began his public ministry at the age of 30, somewhere between the age of 12 and 30 that Jesus was, that's when Joseph died. Because when Jesus begins his public ministry at the age of 30, Joseph is nowhere to be found. And so Joseph was the father, earthly father of Jesus during those very critical years of childhood and adolescence. And I share that with you because those are very important times. There's an author by the name of Paul Witz. And Paul Witz wrote a, a book called Faith of the Fatherless, a, va a rather bold book to have written. He actually, in this book, describes the connection between atheism and faithlessness, or fatherlessness, sorry. The idea that without faith and without fathers, there's a, there's a connection there. A bold book that he wrote. I read an, a, about an interview that he did with Eric Metaxas in this book called Socrates in the City. Some of you might have seen that. He did an interview where he talked about this book and the research that he did. And what he says in the book, not in, the, in so much uh, in the um, interview, but what he says is that young children don't understand death as an accident they just feel purposely abandoned. And to overcome this, this crisis in a child's life, a, a, another person needs to come as a substitute father. A replacement needs to come. It doesn't need to be a stepfather necessarily. It simply needs to be a man who is willing to step into that vacancy in that boy's life, to fill the shoes of the father, to adopt this child as a younger man and to be an unselfish role model in that man's life. In fact, Paul Witz goes on to say that becoming a man, the maturity of becoming a man is actually when as men we come to a place of adopting a younger man, whether we ever become biological fathers or not, that manhood becomes more in in focus when we adopt a younger man and begin to be an unselfish role model and mentor to that younger man. I find it's an incredibly important uh, study, the research that he did, and uh, that uh, as I share this because, uh, I share this because 
not only do a lot of us need to hear about the message that I'm sharing today about the, the earthly fathers that we had and the heavenly father that I'm going to be talking about soon, I share it because in examining Jesus going through childhood and adolescence and growing up, we see that indeed in God's providence, God gave Jesus an earthly father who was a righteous man. And it wasn't just Mary who was a godly example to Jesus. It was his father Joseph as well. And he gave him this earthly father until he was past those critical years of childhood and adolescence. And so I believe that once Joseph did die, then Jesus fast-tracked even more into this deeper intimacy and dependency upon his heavenly father. And so before we look at Jesus' relationship with the Heavenly Father, I want to just acknowledge three lessons that I believe are critical to learn about Joseph. Joseph, we learn from him at least one lesson is the, the, the importance of integrity of character. Before Joseph is dismissed, I want you to see this. While Luke focuses on Mary and her response to the angel's announcement, Matthew focuses on Joseph. And his response was a willingness to suffer, a willingness to be misunderstood with this baby that his betrothed was going to have, a willingness to obey God and receive the scorn of people. It speaks of his integrity of faith, his integrity of character, his loyalty to this woman Mary. That he not only tried to do what was right, he tried to do it in the right way. And that speaks of his integrity. And also we see in Joseph the lesson of the importance of holding in balance justice and mercy. That in, in Joseph we, saw, we see a man who was, uh, wanted to deal with Mary in a just way, but also in a fair way. He wanted to obey God's law, but he wanted to be merciful in the midst of it. As Micah 6, 8, what does God require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God? And then thirdly, we see in Joseph a man who was willing to adopt Jesus as his own. Joseph, Joseph adopted Jesus. He, he took that role as an unselfish man, scorning the shame that was attached to the birth of this child that was not his own, he provides us with a picture of how God adopts us into his family, how Jesus scorned the cross and its shame for the sake of us who are sinners to be able to be adopted into the family of God. Joseph is a picture of that as he takes Jesus in. What a message. In Joseph's life, we see personified this gospel message of God opening up and receiving us into his family. So those are some of the lessons that I think we learned from Joseph. Let's turn our attention now to the relationship of Jesus with God the Father, his heavenly Father, the Father that he had shared eternity past with until he took upon himself human flesh, took the form of a human, laid aside the glory and the intimacy that he had with God the Father from eternity past and he laid it aside and he took the form of a man, born as a baby in poor conditions. Let's look at, take a look at how Jesus grew 
in intimacy with the Father and grew in obedience to the Father and shows us how we also need to grow in intimacy with the Father and in obedience to the Father. There are three scenarios that I'd like to share with you uh, today, and, it, and each one of them is perhaps a snapshot in the life of ministry of Jesus. The first one is the baptism of Jesus found in Matthew 3.16. I'd like to highlight this because here is Jesus, and he comes into the wilderness where John the Baptist is baptized, him, and he is baptized in the Jordan River. And we read that when Jesus came up out of the water, being immersed in the Jordan River, he comes up out of the water. And it says in the scriptures that when he came out, the heavens opened up. And the Spirit of God descended upon Jesus like a dove. And then this voice boomed from heaven. And the voice from heaven said, this is my son, my beloved son, with, him, with whom I am well pleased. What an incredible moment it would have been for Jesus. The beginning of his earthly ministry, he's been growing for 30 years in a closer and closer relationship, learning as a human to be in relationship with the Father, God. And now he begins his earthly ministry. And God the Father gave him on that day three gifts. He gave him the gift of his identity, he said, this is my beloved son. He gave him the gift of love. This is my son whom I love. And he gave him the gift of, of pleasure. With him, I'm well pleased. Again, returning to Dr. Paul Witz, in the research that he did, he said, research has found that the father makes major contributions to a child's development, both sons and daughters, and especially to both their individual and their social identity, the father's relationship. Who you are is very related to whose you are. Your self-understanding is related to whose you are and what you understand of that. And I believe that more than any other man in any time in history, more than any other man, Jesus formed his identity upon what his heavenly Father said of him. And even though he had, as I said, a wonderful example in Joseph as an earthly father, Jesus formed his identity based on what his heavenly Father said of him more than his earthly father. Now some of you watching today have had good fathers. And some of you that are watching today have not had good fathers. All of us have had sinful dads. All of us have had dads who made mistakes. All of us have, have had dads who have had histories with their dads and bring to the, the role of fatherhood the mistakes and the struggles of their past. And what we need to understand is that we will stumble over their errors if we are going to build our identity only on what they think of us. Because like Jesus, he had to learn to grow to that place where he, he received his identity and his security and his significance based on what the Heavenly Father said. And that's what you and I need to do. 
build our lives on what the Lord says about us. We have been created in the image of the Father God, the Heavenly Father. And, and when that image was tarnished by sin, God the Father sent Jesus Christ to this earth to, to redeem and to bring us back into that redeemed image. And so you who are fathers today, or you who are men who are taking the role of a father in a younger man's life, are you giving these three gifts? Are you giving the gift of identity, the gift of love, and the gift of your pleasure in them? The second snapshot that I want to share is the Mount of Transfiguration found in, Jan in Matthew 17. The time in the life of Jesus when he went up the Mount of Transfiguration, he took his three closest friends, Peter, James, and John, with him. Just days before he would be arrested, tried, and crucified. Most likely the mountain that he climbed was Mount Hermon, about 12 miles from Caesarea Philippi, and it stands about 9,000 feet high at the top. So the pace would have been slow as Jesus and the three walked up the mountain. The pace would have been slow. You do not run up mountains. And as Jesus was going up the mountain, Jesus purposed that these three disciples were with him so that they would get a bigger, better, closer revelation of who Jesus is. They needed to slow down. They needed to get up on the mountain. They needed to have a change in perspective. Mountains do that to us. They elevate our perspective. Could I pause for a moment to say that this mountain called COVID-19 is giving us a new perspective on life. It slowed us down as we climb this mountain. It slowed us down. It's causing us to reevaluate. It's elevating our vision, and we're looking down at everything that seemed so very important to us. And it's beginning to cause us to see what really matters in our lives. To get in step with Jesus, to get a better perspective. You know, it's interesting, in John Bunyan's classic work called Pilgrim's Progress, there's a time in the story when when the companions of Pilgrim begin to doubt that the celestial city even exists. It's a very interesting moment because Pilgrim encourages his friends in that moment when they're doubting that the celestial city even exists, that the pilgrimage even matters. Why don't we just give up? And here's what Pilgrim says to them, his friends. He says, he says did we not see it from the top of Mount Clear. I love that. Did we not see the celestial city from the top of Mount Clear? Friends, that is why God gives us mountains. Because sometimes in the trials of life, in the most intimate encounters with God on those mountains, when the Savior becomes more clear to us, like never before. Sometimes life can get reorganized and reprioritized and fit kingdom values better because we all need this, friends. We all need a, a reshuffling of priorities. We can get that on the mountaintops of difficulties where perspectives change because you know it won't be long. It won't be long before, like 
Pilgrim's Progress, we will be back down in the slough of despond and in the valley of despair. We need to remember what we saw when we were on Mount Clear. What are you seeing as God takes you through this mountain called COVID-19? Well, you know the story found in, in Matthew 17. They go up the mountain and Jesus at the top of this mountain is transfigured, it says. The word in Greek is metamorphosis. This change took place. They saw his face shine like the sun. And as they are there, these three apostles, they witness also Moses and Elijah appear. One representing the law, one representing the prophets. And, and this cloud comes down and envelops them in darkness. And then in the midst of that darkness, a voice comes again. What does the voice say? This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And then there were three more ad, uh, words added. He said, listen to him. In this incredible experience, this almost precisely the same words except it's added, listen to him. God the Father at the beginning of the earthly ministry of Jesus at his baptism and now just days before he's going to be crucified on a Roman cross, he enters this, this human area and he says from heaven, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. And the last thing he says the second time is punctuated with listen to him. He's saying, Moses, Elijah, all the law and the prophets, apostles, Peter, James, and John, you who are part of the New Testament church, all of God's people, all of time, listen to this man, Jesus. Listen to him. This is my beloved son, and with him I'm well pleased. And so the father adds to the gifts that he's given his son not only identity and love, and good pleasure, he adds this gift of respect. There comes a time when all fathers should give the gift of respect to their sons and their daughters. There comes a time when they are treated as adults and given that respect. <clears throat> the third scene that I want to describe to you is in Gethsemane, and this is just days after the transfiguration. Jesus Christ is betrayed on this evening just days after the transfiguration and hours before his crucifixion. He celebrated the Passover meal with his disciples, the same meal where he inaugurates the Lord's Supper, which we are going to share in a moment. And after the supper... He takes the 11 disciples because Judas had already gone out into the night to betray Jesus. He takes the 11 disciples and they walk down the narrow streets of Jerusalem and they find the gates, the city wall, and they walk outside of the gates and they go up the Mount of Olives. Not so high as Mount Hermon, but they go up to another mountain called the Mount of Olives. And on that mountain, they go into a garden that they'd known and visited several times. And there Jesus prayed often. It was called the Garden of Gethsemane. And Gethsemane means literally olive press. 
This was a place where they squeezed the olives and they separated out the pulp from the oil. And once they arrived there, Jesus took again his three closest friends, Peter, James, and John, that he had just spent a previous holiday week up the mountain earlier. And he took them into the garden further and he said to them these words. He said, My soul is sorrowful even unto death. Remain here and watch with me. And then going a little farther, he fell on his face and he prayed to the Father, My Father, my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. The word for very sorrowful here in this text, or deeply grieved, is the word related to periphery, the periphery of something. And the idea that is communicated in this context is that Jesus was surrounded by grief and sorrow. There was nowhere that he could turn to get away from the sorrow that he was facing in Gethsemane just hours before he knew he would be hung on that cross. There was no escaping. This was the cup that God the Father asked him to drink. This was the reason he was born in the little town of Bethlehem 33 years earlier. This was God's purpose for him coming to this world and living a sinless life. And so we read in the scriptures that three times he went back to see his friends if they were watching and praying with him and three times they were sleeping. What an incredible loneliness must have fallen upon Jesus. Here he was in Gethsemane being pressed like the olive presses in making oil or grapes in making wine. So much so that it says in the scriptures, Dr. Luke tells us that his sweat became like drops of blood. Such stress was upon him. And yet in the middle of this story, friends, I want you to see, in the middle of this story, we get a sense that he's not alone. Because every time he goes back, every time he goes back to prayer, those three times, he says, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass. And if it is not, thy will be done, father. Friends, I want you to know that this is the last moment. This is the last moment of Jesus' earthly life where he enjoyed intimacy with the Father. He experienced intimacy with the Father in Gethsemane, and there he was arrested. There he was betrayed. There he was taken, tried in a kangaroo court, accused and hung on a Roman cross. cross. And on that cross, what did he cry? Well, we know he cried, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. We know that he cried also, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. But do you know what the last word that he said from the cross was? He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you forsaken me? Jesus was loved by the Father, but he also went willingly to the cross 
where he knew he would be forsaken by the Father, abandoned by the Father, his heavenly Father. He did this in order that we, who are sinners, might be able to be acceptable to the Father, that we might be adopted into the Father's family, as unworthy as we are, because through the blood of Jesus Christ, we are made worthy to be part of his family. Friends, this is the message on this Advent Sunday that I'd like to share with you, that the earthly father of Jesus, Joseph, and the heavenly father of Jesus, our God, teach a lesson about our adoption into the Father's family. And it leads us right to the table of the Lord, which is spread before us. And in a moment, I'm going to meet you at the table, and I'm going to share with you about the incredible union that we have with the Father, though we are separate from him right now physically. And um, I want you to now, if you're watching this now and you want to partake of the Lord's Supper with us, um, I would ask you to go now to your fridge to get some juice, to get some bread, come back and, and after a song we will meet at the table and we will share the Lord's Supper together. As we uh, come around the Lord's table, I want to ask you if you've come to Jesus, <clears throat> excuse me, if you've come to the Savior, I'm not asking you necessarily if you've come to be a Christian, although that certainly is a first step to come to Christ. I'm asking you who are already Christians as well, if you've come to him to receive the gifts from the Father that he wants to give you. And they're only found through faith in Jesus. Have you come to the place where you really are hearing the Father, God, say to you something that's reforming your identity? Hearing him say to you that he loves you like nothing on earth, no one on earth could love you. Hearing him say that he takes pleasure in you, he rejoices over you with singing. Hearing the Father say, I love you, I respect you, I made you in my image, I redeemed you. As you come to the table of the Lord this day and receive the elements that remind us of the death of Jesus Christ, that message that I just shared is what, what this table is to remind you of a new relationship with God the Father. You know, it's interesting that we do not share the Lord's Supper the way the apostles did. And if you could bring that picture up of uh, the apostles in the Last Supper from a painting in the Renaissance period. They're physically with Jesus. We're not physically with Jesus. We're spiritually with Jesus. And we're not even physically with each other. We're spiritually with each other. And the Bible teaches us about the, the mystical union of the body of Christ, 
not only with Jesus, but with each other. Even when we're physically together, we are mystically unified in Christ. There is a spiritual bond that goes deeper than any physical bond. And Paul talks about this in Ephesians 4. He says there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all, and in you all as Christians. One God and Father. And we are mystically unified and in union with Jesus Christ, our Savior, with God the Father, with the Holy Spirit, and with one another in the body of Christ. And so it is that we take this meal, and as a reminder, we remember the death of Jesus. How on the night that he was betrayed, took bread, and he had given thanks. He broke it and said, this is my body given for you. And then after supper, he also took the cup, and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Let us give thanks for the bread and the cup right now. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for the precious gift of your Son in whom we find your love, our identity, and your good pleasure. Oh, God, thank you for the incredible gift of your Son who gave his life at the cross of Calvary, who came to this earth and, and dealt with having to start as a baby in Bethlehem and grew up and had to learn obedience to you and had to learn what it was to seek you and had to learn how it, it was that we could grow to be intimate with you, the Father in heaven. Lord, we thank you for all that Jesus Christ endured, but we thank you especially for the cross. This bread, we thank you for his body that hung on that cross, this cup, a representation of the blood that he shed. We give you praise, O oh Jesus, that you were willing to drink the cup that you tasted of in Gethsemane. And Lord, may we in our lives receive all that that brought in the gifts of Christmas to our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. And now, brothers and sisters in Christ, eat this bread and drink this cup and let us proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again.